it's good to see all of you here. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This will be where our, our thoughts around the Word of God are framed this morning. I hope you've had a good week and that you are looking forward to another good week. Um, one overarching thought that we've been confronted with as we've moved into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, but it's not exclusive to there, is the relevance or importance of living a genuine life that confirms or that lends credibility to the message that we preach. To be a believer in Jesus Christ is not just to accept a series of propositional truths and to hold them in our heads. Instead, uh, the message of Jesus Christ brings us into, into direct contact with the weighty claims of the entirety of Scripture, that there is one God responsible for our creation, and that initially He created us uh, in His image, which means two things. One, we, we are made in his image. There is a sense in which we are uh, a special component uh, or uh, a, a special aspect of God's creation. We are unique and we, we stand apart from uh, everything else that God had made. We hold, a, we hold a special place in the world. God created the universe and he created the earth for us to live in it and for us to dwell in it and for us then to be sustained by his creation. Uh, and as a part of, of being made in the image of God, that means then that there's, there's some way in which we are physically, in appearance, representational of him. But to be made in his image also has another side, a second side to it in the terminology of, uh, of the Old Testament. And that is that God made us to represent his virtues and to mirror his character in the world. Humanity wasn't merely designed to live in the earth and to work it and to conquer it uh, and then to do with it uh, uh, what, we, what we will, however it is that we, we decide to live. Instead, from, uh, from the beginning of creation, God intended for us to, uh, to represent him in the world, to manifest his virtues. And it is being made in God's image, it is that component, excuse me, of being made in God's image that the fall affected. We still represent God We're in the sense of, of, of being like him to some degree in, in appearance then we still have this unique place in creation. But what humanity rejected is representing God's person, his virtues, living under his authority and under his word. But in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, the message that we hear is, is not merely that you can escape the eternal wrath of God, that's part of it, and that God has provided that escape through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But also, that as believers in the true and living God, we are now, through the work of God, through His Spirit, we are brought into a right relationship with Him that enables us and actually imbues us with the desire to live under His authority, to grow in his virtues, to live out in accordance with his character in the world. And we find that this is a fundamental aspect of the, the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the effects of believing it for those who hear it and place their faith in Jesus Christ as a result of hearing it. That there now comes to be a, a, a way of life that characterizes true believers. 
and that we stand out as true believers from the rest of the world because the virtues of Christ come to be present in us increasingly as we mature in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that being a believer in Jesus then also means participation in a way of living. And indeed, it is the presence, the obvious presence of that way of living that gives credibility in an unbelieving world to the message that we preach. And Paul understood this, and Paul is calling upon the Thessalonians to to remember the way that he behaved, the way that he acted, the way that he lived that was consistent with the message that he preached, that demonstrated that there, was, that there was real substance to the message and to him because these virtues were present. And as I, I think I mentioned last week, if not, I'll say it, this is, this is relevant for our own times Think about what modern American Christianity is like. If I, if I were to ask you, well, do you, do you, is, modern, is the reputation of modern American Christianity one of seriousness or one of a lack of seriousness? Are we people who, uh, who are, are serious about demonstrating the virtues of Christ? Standing out and being separate in our behaviors and thinking, our way of living from the unbelieving world, or is it blending in with that world and reflecting back to the world its own virtues? If I were to use, if I were to use names like, let's say, Joel Osteen, do you, would you associate that with serious, heavyweight, Christianity, or is that something else? Is it something a bit lighter, more on the entertainment side, less serious by design? And this is where we are. What kind of people are we in the world? Are we serious Christians because we take the message of the Bible seriously? Does the world see us as a separate and distinct people in the way we live, in the virtues that we value, how we are oriented in terms of who we want to please and what, what we understand life to be about? Or are we mere mirrors of our own culture, of our own society with its lack of seriousness, orientation toward entertainment, What kind of people are we? And for Paul, he is saying to the Thessalonians, you understood that the message I bore to you had real substance and credibility because you saw in me someone who was serious in the way that I acted. You saw someone willing to live out in a way that was consistent with the word of God. And I want you to recall the way I conducted myself when I was there with you because what Paul wants to do is to remind the Thessalonians that he was honest. To remind the Thessalonians of what he was really trying to do. And he wants to remind them of his credibility through distinguishing himself from the types of philosophers and even to some degree entertainers that made their way through the Greco-Roman world, spewing ideas on the roadside and even being invited to speak in front of public assemblies all for the sake of money or for something else. So, as we think about that, that big picture, there, there are two ways that we can, I think, properly analyze this. Number one, we could think about our own need for seriousness, to be serious people living seriously in an unserious world. 
And then two, we could, be, we could take this and make it something much more basic and yet important and instructive. Namely, what does a serious preacher of the gospel look like? What does that look like? And maybe with, with all the other things that have, shall I say, evolved and use it in its basic sense, all the things that have evolved out since the late 19th century in particularly American Christianity, it might be good for us to be reacquainted with what, what does a serious preacher of the gospel look like? Because I do know this, what Paul says about himself in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is also what he says to Timothy and Titus that they are to look for in the men that they appointed as pastors over the churches. And it's the same thing. Those are the same virtues, the same characteristics that they were to exhibit in the meantime. So that this becomes kind of foundation for thinking about what does a biblical preacher look like? What ought a pastor to look like? What charges is he open to? And how does he overcome those standard human accusations and demonstrate that he is a credible, serious individual bearing a message that everyone ought to take seriously? All right, so as we think about those, those are lofty goals, I know. But let's look now at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 as we think about some of these bigger picture items. Paul says, as a way of explanation, and we'll come back to what he's explaining in just a moment. He says there, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which tries our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Now we'll save the end of verse 6 and carry that over to our Bible study tonight as we continue to look at this chapter. But I want you to think about what you've heard over the years. I want you to think about the standard the standard characteristics or, or character failings that are often used to discredit preachers. What are the public, you know, what are the broader uh, public ideas that float around about preachers and what motivates them? And as you begin to gather those out of the corners of your mind, what I'm going to also guess is that what, what you know, the general character failings of preachers are often thought to be, are the same ones that Paul was trying to protect himself against in 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul didn't want to be thought of as just your kind of standard run-of-the-mill individual who was spouting ideas for his own purposes. And the Thessalonians did not understand him to be that kind of individual. And so Paul is calling upon them to think back. What was I actually like? And as he begins to explain the characteristics that he did not display, he is actually getting at some positives that we want to think about. And he begins by reminding them that he had honest motives. He had honest motives. Let's look back at, at verse 3 for just a second, where we get a triad of terms. He says, Our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. Now the first thing we need to break, break down about verse 3 is just the shift of language for a moment. 
What is under consideration is Paul's entrance, the kind of individual that he was when he was among the Thessalonians. And he wants them to think about his character. He wants them to think about the fact that his entrance was not in vain. You can see that in chapter 2 and verse 1. Where really, by my entrance not being in vain, what he's getting at is this idea. I wasn't an empty suit. I wasn't an individual of, of no substance whatsoever. There was, there was something about the way I acted and behaved and carried myself that lent to you, that suggested to you, you should listen to what I have to say and you should take it seriously in the way in which I present it. So what he's, what he's ultimately trying to break down here is what indicated to the Thessalonians that there was substance to him and therefore substance to his message. He wasn't just this empty individual, this, this person who lacked substance, who lacked seriousness. And so he's explaining that in verse 3, but instead of, of retaining the language of entrance, which we find in 1.9 and 2.1, Paul now shifts to the language of exhortation. And by exhortation, what he gathers up under that umbrella is the message that he preached, but alongside with that, what motivated him in bearing that message. Now when we think of the act of preaching, one of the ways that it would be biblical for us to consider it is that we're involved in exhorting or encouraging people. The message itself is an encouragement, an encouragement to hear, an encouragement to believe, an encouragement to consider and to weigh the evidence. And there's two sides to the encouragement, and Paul could mean either or both at the same time. On the one hand, the encouragement language also sometimes occurs with a warning. And certainly, the gospel message is a warning. While it is an invitation to believe God and to see Him as loving and compassionate. It is also a warning that we as fallen humanity are under the wrath of God. And there's temporary, momentary evidence, material evidence that we are currently under the wrath of God. And then also after we uh, live under the wrath of God here, because we are fallen, we must be concerned about the wrath of God in eternal judgment. And part of our message then is that God is real and his future judgment is real. And we are already under his condemnation. And by default, because of the, the principle of total hereditary depravity, through the sin of Adam, we all enter into the world under God's wrath and we will face God's wrath for all eternity. On the other hand, though, that same message is a message of encouragement, of exhortation. You don't have to face the wrath of God. Instead, as Paul has already written uh, here in 1 Thessalonians, look back at verse 10, that in, the, in his characterization of the conversion of the Thessalonians, he says that they wait for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who what? Who rest, he, he's the one rescuing us or delivering us from the wrath to come. We don't have to face God's eternal wrath. There is a rescuer from God's wrath. There's a savior from God's wrath. And that is his son Jesus Christ. And through his crucifixion and resurrection, God has provided salvation from the wrath to come. 
And the gospel message calls us to place our complete faith and trust in God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that what God has accomplished through His Son, Jesus Christ, means that we no longer have to worry about facing God's eternal wrath. And there is an invitation, there's an exhortation to trust in Jesus Christ and to be saved from that wrath. Right, now that's just the long way Paul is using this exhortation language to characterize his entrance, his message, his preaching. But then what motivated him to bear this message? Well, what he wants to demonstrate is that his motives were honest and he demonstrates the positive, honest motives through using negatives. And so he first of all says that this exhortation did not come from the source of deceit. If you look at verse 3, it was not of, that is literally out from, so its source was not deceit. The source of what I preached to you was not deceit. I was not motivated by deceit. Now what's deceit? We could understand deceit from one of two points of view here. And Paul probably means more one more than the other. Number one, this is just the common word in the New Testament for the act of intentionally telling lies for the purpose of deceiving other people. However, Paul is going to use what might even be perhaps a stronger visual picture at the, as the third word in a triad here in verse 3. So that more than likely he's using this, this, this first word, deceit, with, with uh, less charge here. It's not carrying that, that much weight. Instead, what he's getting at most likely, is that it wasn't motivated by error. And what he, what he would mean then is this. The exhortation that is the message I preached to you, it did not come from me being confused or in error about the message. I, it wasn't just a bunch of confused thoughts, disconnected ideas. I didn't hear it wrong from other people. I wasn't informed wrongly by God or God told me this and, and I, I just made a mistake in the way that I presented it to you. When I was there, the message that I bore, it wasn't just this meandering morass of confused disjointed, untrue ideas. But I presented them to you as true, not realizing that I, was, that I was in error personally. In other words, I knew what I was talking about when I was there. And it was clear to you when I presented my message that you understood I knew what I was talking about. And again, recall back in, in the book of Acts, how did all this begin? Yes, it spilled over into the Gentile world, but what did Paul do for three straight weeks? He went in and he made a case, didn't he? And he demonstrated from the scriptures. He laid out an argument from the scriptures. Here's what the Bible teaches and here's the conclusion we must come to that Jesus is the Messiah. And you understood, you saw that what motivated me wasn't, you know, a, a bunch of confused errors in my own mind. You saw that I preached to you knowing full well what I was saying. And it was obvious to you that I knew what I was talking about. That I wasn't just in error. Now, hopefully... This doesn't happen too often here, although I have to allow that it does. But hopefully you can think in your mind of listening to someone preach and you, you're, you're thinking, well, this person hasn't really put a lot of thought 
into what these scriptures actually mean. This person hasn't actually put a lot of thought into what they're saying. It just sounds like it's shooting from the hip, off the cuff. I don't know whether I ought to believe this or not. What's going on here? And what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians is, you understood I wasn't that type of individual. I wasn't just shooting from the hip. I wasn't just making things up as I go along. And I certainly wasn't preaching from the point of view where I was confused and didn't understand myself, and then I tried to get you to believe ideas that I was confused with on my own. It was true. It was serious. You knew that what I was saying and the way in which I was saying it lent itself to me being clear on the ideas and actually believing them myself. Number two, he says... Our exhortation was not from uncleanness. Now, this term uncleanness can be understood in one of two ways, or perhaps both. In fact, Paul will feature it later in chapter 4. Um, it, is a, it is a common term that he uses in the New Testament, and in this letter in particular, to refer to sexual immorality. And it is possible that he's saying something like this, although I don't think it's likely given the context in which it's used here. But it is possible that he is saying, my exhortation, I wasn't motivated to preach to you hoping to attract people to myself for the purpose of engaging in sexual sin." Now that would definitely, though, hit home in our world, wouldn't it? given all the scandals that we seem to hear about routinely, not only from well-known television preachers, but that more and more what we hear about in youth groups, what we hear about plaguing the Catholic churches, for example, but not just them, where those who are supposedly in a position of responsibility and where those who are supposedly in a position of bearing the message of Jesus Christ, that actually what they do is use that responsibility, or maybe I should say abuse that high responsibility, and it's just a way of engaging in their own sexual lusts. Paul could mean that. And if so, it would definitely carry a lot of resonance, not only with them, but with us. But more than likely, since this is a term used in between two words that relate to the acts of, de acts of deception, he probably just uses it in, in a less sexually charged way, with a meaning that just my, my motives were pure. I was honest. He's already gotten at this, and we've looked at it a couple of times. He told the Thessalonians earlier that uh, our message came not unto you, this is chapter 1, verse 5, in word only, but also in power and in Holy Spirit and in much assurance, where he's getting at the fact that the work of the Holy Spirit in him as a believer manifested itself in the Thessalonians' understanding that Paul was open and honest and upfront. Nothing was hidden. His motives were genuine and pure. And so whether he means that he's using, you know, that he didn't use preaching as a way of engaging in sexual immorality or whether he doesn't mean that here, what he's getting at in the kernel basic sense is that his motives were completely pure and they were observable as completely pure. Nothing was hidden. It was open honest, upfront, genuine for everyone to see. The third term in our triad in verse 3 is a very picturesque word. It refers to going fishing. And what does a fisherman do? Right, now we're going to stereotype fishermen. What do we associate with fishermen? Are fishermen known for telling true stories? Or, I once caught a fish, you know, this big. 
Fishermen are known for lying, but the act of fishing itself is a lie. And, all right, I'm not saying that all fishermen are dishonest or that you're a liar if you go fishing. Please don't misunderstand. But what this term has in mind is a fisherman who uses a hook in the water, not like the commercial fishermen, which Peter and James and John were, where they used nets. But here we're talking about the individual fish, fisherman or the person who goes fishing. What do you do to your hook? Do you expose it in the water or do you hide it? And are you not trying to, in fact, this is the terminology, right? Lure in a fish through a baited hook. And this is what Paul means here at the end, and this is a stronger word for deceit. What he says is that my message was not given to you in, and here he's going for the complete characterization, I, I wasn't someone trying to lure you in under false pretenses. I didn't bait a hook to attract you. In fact, he's going to use that more terminology related to this idea. Now this has relevance for us too. What's, what's the attraction to the gospel? What brings you in? Do we, do we bait and, and switch you? Do we, do we lure you in through something else, through false pretenses, and then give you the, the full weight of the gospel? Or from the outset, is it the full weight of the gospel? No pretenses, no hiding, no fakery. For Paul... The credibility of the message included that it was obvious to the Thessalonians that he wasn't trying to pull a bait and switch. He wasn't trying to lure them in under false pretenses. He was open and upfront about who he was, what he was doing, and the message he bore, and he conducted himself in a way that lent credibility to the way he presented himself and his message. So I wasn't trying to pull a bait and switch. Would the same be true if we just thought about, again, modern American Christianity? What are the bouncy houses and the trips and the fun and games? You say, well, they might be opportunities for fellowship. Huh? Okay. But are they also a way of luring people in under different pretenses as opposed to just the open and honest presentation of the gospel? You say, well, people are less likely to be attracted to the gospel if we just present it to them in full medicine than if we use these other ways around. Yeah, Paul has something to say about that in just a minute. But for him... The model is, I wasn't confused, I wasn't in error, I wasn't trying to trick you, and I was pure. There was no hidden motive when I preached to you. Now, he goes on, verse 4. This is something very important. Paul saw, bearing the message of God, as one where he had divine accountability. So his motives were honest, but also Paul understood that he had a high responsibility in preaching the gospel that brought with it accountability to God. And so it was important that if he were going to, uh, if he were going to match up the responsibility of preaching with that accountability that he had to be open and honest and it had to be obvious that his motives were pure. So look at what he says, verse 4, in strong contrast to deceit and uncleanness and guile, look at what he says. Notice how he characterizes it and then look at what he says. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who what? Who tries our hearts. Now, on the front end and on the back end of verse 4, 
we have the same terminology used. In the King James Version, if you're looking at that, the word that's translated aloud and the word that's translated trieth at the end of verse 4 come from the very same Greek verb. And what Paul is suggesting at the front, at the first, is that, that God had purified him or had found him to be a genuine individual. The term that's translated aloud or tries come from, comes from a Greek word that refers to the act of, of assaying or testing the purity of a precious metal. And we find it used, Peter particularly likes to use it, Paul uses it every now and then. But he is, he is saying that God had either purified his heart and as a result of God's act of purification, God had entrusted him with the gospel. Or he is saying that, that before he was chosen as an apostle, God looked at him and saw him as someone who was a genuine convert. He was someone who was refined, he was pure, he was precious. That there's something that's separate and unique about Paul. And that God himself is responsible for that purification. But having been found refined or pure, God then, and notice the terminology, God did what? Put him in trust with the gospel. That is, God entrusted me. And here, it's the same Greek verb that usually is the one for believing. Where it is God now who finds Paul someone trustworthy. He could trust Paul with his message. This is a very important idea. Paul uses this particularly of Timothy. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy that he has been entrusted with the word of God. And there is a, there has to be a serious sense in which any man of God who preaches the word of God has to see himself with the highest of responsibilities. God has entrusted his word to me. Now that is not an unserious statement. And it doesn't call for entertainers and flatterers and tricksters and people who are out for themselves. You remember that Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, or at least there Paul characterizes being put in the position of an overseer of a church as a high calling. It is a good work, he, call, he says of it. Now, if the God of the Bible is the true and living God, and if his word is in fact his word, then think about how weighty of a responsibility it is to communicate the word of God to people, believers and unbelievers. It's either the most important thing that anybody could ever hear if it's true, or it's the least important thing anybody could ever think about if it's not true. But if, if the message of Scripture is true, then it's, it's much more important that our preachers be careful, that our preachers be accurate, than it is for our doctors and our scientists and our experts in academic fields to be accurate. It's more important to, lit, to, to, to bear the message of God than it is to be the leader of a nation and to speak to your people. This is no menial task that calls for the lowest of low individuals. 
It is a high responsibility to be entrusted with the word of God. And I want to say this too, lest you think this is just about me. When you speak the word of God to people who are your acquaintances, out in the world, at work, it cannot be a trivial conversation. It's a high responsibility to know the truth and to communicate it to others. And Paul says, instead of being unclean and impure in my motives and confused and dishonest trying to trick you, instead, here's the way I see myself. I've been... I've been refined by God, found genuine by Him, and as a consequence of that, He has entrusted me with His Word. And that means then that I have to consider not human accountability, but divine accountability. So look at what he says. We are speaking, and he's not, he doesn't just have in mind what I did in the past, but even right now, even so, he says, we are speaking not as pleasing men, but God which tries our hearts. We're not trying to just entertain people here. The effort is not to bear the message, to present the message of God in a way where people say, ah, that, isn't that wonderful? That, that makes me happy to hear that. I'm not motivated through seeking pleasing people. Instead, what motivates me? I speak to please God. It's his message. He's entrusted me with it. I speak to please him. Why? Because one of the ways to consider him and to think about him is that he is trying our hearts. I can fool you. You can think I'm genuine and sincere when I'm not. I can't fool him. And I know that I've been entrusted with his message and that he is going to hold me responsible and he sees what you can't. He sees my heart. And so I speak to you. I preach to you knowing that God sees my heart. And so I am not trying to deceive you. I don't have impure motives. I'm not just trying to lure you in because my aim is not to please you. I have a serious message entrusted to me by the true and living God and I know he sees my motives and so I preach to please him. Then, in verse 5, real quickly, he says this. As a way of explanation, for neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Paul was not speaking from the point of view of using a word of flattery. The term flatter here just means what we would use, what we would mean. He didn't butter them up so that they find, might find the message more palatable, more pleasing, and be attracted to it through him, through such preaching. Paul was not a cheap philosopher spouting confused thoughts. He was not a, he was not a mere flatterer. And then he says, secondly, that in his preaching... He was not using it as a cloak of covetousness, where the word translated cloak means actually a facade that covered his, his personal desire for wealth. The word covetousness refers to greed, the attempt to enhance one's wealth status. So Paul did not resort to the tactics of a cheap philosopher spouting confused thoughts as a way of hiding that what he was really after is their money. Instead, he preached knowing that he was accountable to God, 
that he had been trust, entrusted and made responsible for bearing the most important and highest of messages. And he preached from that point of view where accuracy and truthfulness and honesty were the goals. He was not motivated by however he might have been benefited through separating the Thessalonians from their money. I want to conclude by asking you to look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 6. These characteristics become standard. You and I both know that one of the traditional accusations against preachers is that we're just in it for the money. And Paul, at this time, uh, uh, Paul uh, uh, has explained to the Thessalonians his own perspective on that. He does so with the Corinthians as well. But I want you to notice the warning that he gives Timothy, beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3, and we'll read all the way to verse 10, because I want you to see where Paul takes this. He says, If any man teach otherwise... And consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words. That is, he's just playing word games. Whereof comes envy, strife, railings, evil sur surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth. Now notice this. Supposing that gain, and by that he means financial gain, is godliness, from such withdraw yourself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, that is, having food and clothing, let us therewith be content, that is, let us find that to be sufficient. Verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and in many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now that whole paragraph is about people who are preachers. It's not just general commentary. It's about preachers. And Timothy was to show himself different from those types of preachers and he was to appoint men over the churches of Macedonia who were the opposite of these kinds of preachers. And did you notice what behaviors were present in the teachers Paul told Timothy to avoid? And did you see what motivated them? Men who were merely after money. The desire for money is the root of all the evils that they engage in, Paul says. Well, what is that? Well, they're doing nothing but playing word games, creating divisions and strife among people. In other words, they're not serious. They don't really understand what they're talking about. They're playing word games, and then what do they do? They seek to separate people from their money. They, they end up confusing people causing them uh, uh, to go into greater destruction. They end up erring from the faith themselves. Why? All because they see preaching not as a serious responsibility and task given to them by God, but rather they see it as a way to earn money for themselves. That's not who you're supposed to be. Preaching is not an occupation in the same way that our regular jobs or occupations. It is a high calling that calls for serious people, serious men, handling the word of God carefully and living their lives in such a way that demonstrates that they are open 
and honest, they don't have ulterior motives, and they're not driven by the desire just to put money in a bank account. Well, if that's the case, what does that tell you about those who do all of that? What does a real preacher look like versus what's a fake? And you and I need to be on the lookout because not all preachers of the gospel see it as a high responsibility. And we need to be careful about who we listen to and why. And Paul here sets an example for you and for me, but especially for me. What you ought to see in me is someone open and honest and upfront, not interested in your money, but rather interested in pleasing God through the careful, accurate handling of his word. And with that, I thank you for listening this morning, and I'm going to ask you to join me in standing. I hope you come back and you will finish this out with me this evening as we meet together at 7 p.m. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to the close of this service today, we thank you so much for your word, for what it makes known to us. We thank you that you have given us your word, and we know it is something that we are not to take trivially or lightly. Help us to handle it accurately, seeking the truth, so that we may preach the truth and live out the truth before a lost and dying world. And we pray for that world, that they would, through our witness, come to believe the truth that you exist and that the only way to be right with you is through Jesus Christ and what you have done for us through him. You have sent him into the world to live in obedience to you and to give his life through crucifixion as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And you have raised him from the dead, completing the work of righteousness and salvation. Father, help us to preach to others these truths and help us to live them out in the world in a way that is consistent with your word, that it might lend credibility to you and to your message. We pray now for protection as we go to our homes. And we ask that you would bring us back safely this evening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.